and welcome to Greeks and Geeks, the podcast that takes us on a persnickety but fun journey deep diving into the lore behind our favourite stories. I'm your host Sabrina and today we'll be looking at the many different interpretations of Circe over the years. Is she a scheming, seductive witch? Is she a tragic, isolated figure? A lover? The other woman in a man's story about finding his way home to his wife? Well, the answer is pretty tricky, because she's been all of these and so much more. Now, much like many Greek myths, I have to start with saying that I had to pick and choose a handful of the hundreds, if not thousands, of interpretations of Circe's story. This is because if I talked about all of them, I think this podcast would go into next week. And by the way, I cannot begin to tell you the sheer amount of interpretations of Circe, not just in books, but TV shows, movies, art, and even video games. Each interpretation is slightly different, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with Circe, allow me to introduce you to her. Circe is a witch and minor goddess of Greek mythology. In most stories, she is the daughter of the titan Helios, the titans being the gods who ruled before the Olympians, there was a big kerfuffle, it was a giant war, and you know, like I don't have time to get into the titanomachy right now, but let's just say it was super messed up, and then the Olympian gods won, and blah blah blah, but the titans, many of them still hung around afterwards. But anyways, her mother was the ocean nymph Percy, and let me tell you, this girl... You think you've got a messed up family? Well, let's get into some of Circe's siblings. Her brother Aetes was one of those greedy conniving kings so common in Greek myth. He was the keeper of the Golden Fleece, which Jason eventually won with the help of Aetes' daughter and Circe's niece, Medea. Yes, that Medea, if you know who I'm talking about. Medea is a witch too, but she went on to kill her and Jason's kids after Jason, you know, he did the whole Greek mythology man thing and cheated on her. And it was just like, you know what? She, you know what? We just support women's rights and wrongs on this podcast, okay? Except maybe, but maybe the, the kid killing is going a little bit too far. Just, just a piquito bit. Anyway, let's go on to her sister. Her sister Pasiphae was the wife of King Minos. You might know her as the queen who found a ball so attractive she had a baby with it, and that baby was the monster known as the Minotaur, who gobbled up Athenians in its famous labyrinth built by Daedalus. See, now all I can imagine is how awkward those Christmas dinners must have been. Well, I suppose they don't celebrate Christmas in ancient Greece anyhow, so that's really stupid of a comparison, so bullet dodged as well, I guess. But anyways, besides, Circe's all stuck on that island, so she's got the perfect excuse of, oh no, sorry, I never got your invitation to tea. The sea monster I cursed must have eaten the messenger. So sad, sorry. Uh, But I'm getting ahead of myself. So there's Circe with her messed up family, but most people don't know her because of that. Most people know her for being a witch who lived on an island. Sometimes she's exiled there because the Olympians feared her powerful sorcery, because Olympians be Olympian like that, especially Zeus, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes she's banished there due to jealously cursing a nymph who caught the eye of one of Circe's love interests. Other times she's just a woman on her island minding her own business. Either way, the things you most have to know about her is she's a witch and she lives on an island. Honestly, in the capitalistic hellscape that we call this reality, I'm kind of envious. I too yearn to be a witch, chilling on my island with a bunch of animals. Anyone else want in? (laughs) Okay, okay, I'm oversimplifying again, sorry. There is a tiny bit more to it than that, and that is the fact that if you happen to be a man who managed to find your way onto Cersei's island, chances are you're most likely going to be turned into some form of animal. Usually a pig, to be specific. 
in most interpretations, it's men who've insulted her or acted like pigs that usually end up as one, literally. So, there we have it. A witchy goddess who lives on an island surrounded by nymphs who turns bad men into animals without so much of a how do you do. I have two questions. First, does anyone have a time slash myth creator machine so I can travel to Cersei's island? And second, do you think she's willing to adopt a 32-year-old teenage girl? The thing that always strikes me about Cersei is how different her interpretations are over time. As attitudes about witchcraft and gender change and grow, so too does the idea of Cersei in our minds. Cersei and her many iterations have been known as a gracious host, an evil witch, a femme fatale, and most recently a feminist icon. You might say she has been transformed as many times as she has transformed others. Or something poetic like that, I don't know. It's 10pm at the time I'm writing this script after a long day of teaching. You try to be poetic after educating kids in English, maths and art whilst also getting them to please stop picking their nose. Right, sorry, getting off track again. I was recently reading a fascinating book called Greek Myths That Shape the Way We Think by Richard Buxton, which had a chapter on Medea, Circe's niece. She is another sorceress who is looked at in an unfavourable manner. Although, admittedly, most myths do say she killed her own children in a revenge plan, so she's definitely got more of an edge than Cersei does, to put it mildly. But in his book, Buxton looks at how such myths grow and change over time, especially with the prevalence of Christianity after antiquity and the lack of women in academic spaces. Medea, especially, seems to suffer from ever more harsh interpretations. She doesn't just kill her children. In some medieval interpretations, she even tricks their father Jason into eating their hearts. The history of European culture being what it is, Buxton states, the vast majority of those who have remade Medea's mythology have been male. Why is this a problem? Well, before you get all not all many at me, remember I'm literally quoting a man and promoting his book here. Also, Richard Buxton was a very nice professor who answered my email and gave me some sources to look up for this video besides his own. So yes, I know not all men. But the problem with this is the same problem I have with some translations of the Iliad or why men writing women poorly is a trope. When any group is marginalised or pushed to one side and the majority group speaks for them or worse, ignores them completely, it allows for stereotypes and biases to creep in. For interpretations of the classics, such as the Odyssey and the Iliad, the hyperfixation with making Helen constantly degrade herself in a sexualized way, with language specifically used when degrading women, when she wasn't as derogatory in the original translation, becomes a problem. Instead of focusing and interpreting the biases and sexism of the ancient world, you're bringing in biases and sexism of your modern world. Even though the ancient Greeks had a very different way of looking at things, it can't be mistaken then that Circe shares the same fate as her niece, as Helen, as Pandora and all the other Greek women who have been sidelined or treated harshly. However, things aren't as black and white as, oh yeah, patriarchy and sexism was really bad, so Circe was considered an evil, murderous witch throughout the whole of history, and it was only Madeline Miller's Circe that made her a feminist icon and saved Circe from the patriarchy. Bit regressive, innit? But... As of the time of writing this script, it was the year of the Barbie movie, and I'm going to try and be a little bit more nuanced than Ken with his patriarchy models. Besides, I agree with him. If it isn't about horses, I'm not really interested. So I'm going to take you through a handful of Cersei interpretations and discuss my thoughts on them. And it would be most obvious to start with the Odyssey.
For this part, I'm using Emily Wilson's translation. Emily Wilson, for those who don't know her, is an incredible academic. She's the first woman to officially translate the Odyssey into English. I greatly enjoy her lecture about translating the Odyssey. It's about an hour long, but it's on YouTube. I'll link it for you as I highly recommend it for a deep dive into the fascinating world of translation and how our biases can affect how we interpret ancient text. In the Odyssey, the first mention we ever get of Circe is that she is a beautiful, dreadful goddess. What a mysterious combination that seems to be. However, ancient Greeks often had opposing views of witchcraft. You had goddesses such as Hecate, who is the goddess of witchcraft and was revered. In society at large, witchcraft had a lot to do with healing, and those women were often respected members of the community. But on the other hand, witches in a lot of ancient Greek myths are often portrayed as seductive, powerful, and usually out to get men in one way or another, usually in an act of revenge. It's worth noting that Emily Wilson stated that Homer's epics were most likely intended for a male audience. So this could be a reflection of male anxieties towards female empowerment. We can see this with Circe taming wild, masculine animals such as mountain wolves and lions. Heracles famously fought and killed a lion, yet Circe is able to tame them with drugs. Hmm, symbolic much? We can also see these anxieties play out in the way Odysseus handles Circe, so to speak. At this point, Circe has turned Odysseus's men into pigs when they arrived at her island. Hermes tells Odysseus that a show of force or violence is the way to get Circe to back off, and it works. After being given a special plant, Molly, which means Circe's potions don't work on him, he charges at her and, in fear, she relents. She offers to sleep with him after his big, strong, mighty man power display and the two form a very trusting bond born of mutual respect. You know, once he put her in her place. Allow me to put my eyes squarely back into my head. I rolled them so hard they fell out. Putting aside the obvious patriarchal ickiness for now, if we ignore the way their relationship starts, we can see that the two do indeed grow very close. Circe dresses him. He touches her knee in supplication when he asks her for something, which is a huge sign of respect. He stays on her island a whole year and unlike Calypso, she does let him go. She understands him as much as he does her. Your mind is still obsessed with deeds of war, she chides him, without fear that he will use that violent display as he did at their first meeting. The relationship between Circe and Odysseus in the Odyssey is a fascinating one, as it can be interpreted so many ways. Are they using each other? Do they truly have a bond? Arguments can be made for both. My interpretation of Circe in the Odyssey, which doesn't hold much weight I know because I'm not a scholar, is that I very much don't get the impression she's overly seductive or an evil temptress here. She is an antagonist at first, tricking Odysseus's men and turning them into pigs, but she's no polythemus. She doesn't destroy or murder Odysseus's men. Her actions are wicked and shocking. Well, I mean, to the ancient Greek men hearing about it, I'm sure they are. I for one support her endeavours, and I have a couple of men who I might like to send her way, but that's not important right now. Regardless, she is not irredeemably evil. She does offer her bed to Odysseus, so there is an element of temptation. She is beautiful, powerful, deadly and seductive, but in her words, they share a bed so that they can trust each other. A level playing field, I suppose. Behave yourselves! Her part of the poem is much more about how seductive her knowledge can be. 
Once Odysseus has outdone her, he has access to her knowledge. That is the thing that is most tempting about her, the knowledge she has which in turn can help Odysseus and his men get home. As this is a tale written by a man, about a man, and for a male audience, we don't really get a lot of insight into Circe's mind. Why does she feel the need to guard her home with friendly mountain lions? Why does she turn men into pigs? We don't know. All we know is that she does, and that makes her dangerous and powerful. In short, she's another conquest for Odysseus to prove how strong and clever he is, another part of his journey rather than a character in her own right. And here's the part where I had to delete a few hundred words breaking down Odysseus's character because not everything is about you, Odysseus! Next, we head off to the Romans with Virgil's interpretation of her in the Aeneid. Circe goes from a full-fledged speaking role in Homer to basically a background character with no speaking lines in Virgil. He makes note of many attributes Homer gave Circe, her singing and her weaving, but as his main character Aeneas only passes by her island rather than visit it, it seems a lot more mysterious. The animals, a bear now added to the list of pigs, wolves and lions, sound more menacing than the docile ones of Homer's descriptions. In the Aeneid, all of Circe's functions to the plot of the Odyssey are given to other characters. However, we get to hear other stories about her. For example, a story is told where she changes a king into a bird because she was in love with him, yet he scorned her. This is not going to be the last of those types of stories. In The Hidden Seduction, Circe and the Sirens in the Aeneid, Author Laura Arisi writes that Circe in the Aeneid has become defined by the patriarchal constructs of womanhood, domestic work at the loom, singing songs and the intoxicating scent of the smoke. However, there's the flip side, the dangers of perversion and magic too. Personally, I like the Odyssey's take on Circe better. Arisi writes that the Aeneid version of Circe is over-feminized and it is this interpretation of her which trivialises her power into something far more seductive than it was in the Odyssey. By stripping her of her knowledge and her role in the plot, her part is a lot more reductive. In Ovid, another jealous Circe appears. This time, she is jealous that a god she loves, Glaucus, loves the nymph Scylla instead of her. She bewitches the waters where Scylla likes to bathe, transforming her into the hideous, man-eating creature we see in the Odyssey. Here, she is emotional, malevolent, and jealous. All of those scary things men love painting powerful women as. Yay! There's a part of me that wonders if these harsher, even more patriarchal interpretations of Circe by Roman writers arise due to the fact that the ancient Romans were more uneasy at the idea of witchcraft than the ancient Greeks were. And the ancient Greeks certainly had a complicated relationship with witchcraft. Witches in the ancient Roman world were associated with poisons. Casting of spells, which caused harm, was strictly prohibited by actual law, especially when it comes to things like harming of crops, animals or people. So, in order to take away Circe's power, you need to strip her of her use, her ability to be a friend and ally, such as in the case of Virgil, or you highlight the stories which show her at her worst, pettiest and most cruel, such as in Ovid. 
But as much as I want to be all, boo, you gave Cersei's best roles to the other people because you're a fraidy cat man, right? Boo! I can't because not everything is so simplistic. And the Aeneid and Metamorphosis are different tales written in different times for different purposes. The Aeneid, in particular, is more of an origin story for romance than anything, that they are the descendants of Troy. I can also admit the limits of my research here. I've taken a long time to write this script, and it's because Cersei is such a dense, complicated topic, and her stories are enclosed in such dense, complicated ones. It's hard to pick apart when you're doing this for a hobby. But also saying, boo, patriarchy is fun, so I'm going to do it anyways. Boo, you took Cersei's voice away! To quote Rufio in Hook, you man, you stupid, stupid man! Righto! <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't say that Ovid's version of Cersei 2 didn't pave the way for some absolutely banging artwork, god tier, goddess tier if you will. Cersei has been depicted in art since like forever, but I need to talk about the pre-Raphaelites for a second, please let me talk about the pre-Raphaelites, specifically John William Waterhouse's paintings because ugh, his artwork makes me feel things. In John William Waterhouse's painting, Circe offering a cup to Odysseus slash Ulysses, we see the scene where Circe and Odysseus first meet. The scene shows a beautiful, powerful goddess on her throne, surrounded by purple flowers, purple being the colour of royalty, of course. With her one hand, she holds her wand. We see her offering a cup of wine to Odysseus, which we know is bewitched. Odysseus is reflected in a mirror, looking like he's ready to strike. I've seen this painting in real life and to me, this is an image of Cersei at her most powerful and seductive. Maybe I'm just a dumb bisexual woman with no sense of survival skills when it comes to beautiful, powerful women, but I think this artwork is a positive representation of Cersei. Maybe not for Odysseus, but... The second John William Waterhouse's painting I want to talk about is Cersei Invidiosa. It sounds like a Harry Potter spell. <laughs> Sorry. This is based on the Ovid story where Cersei bewitches the waters where Scylla bathes. You can see her pouring the potion into the pool. Here, she's full of malice and is downright scary. The blues and greens are both beautiful and dreadful, pretty, yet they kind of remind you of being sick or ill at ease, exactly like Cersei. But I get a sense of pain behind her eyes too. Her cruelty is motivated by heartbreak. It's a haunting piece of art. These paintings were created in the Victorian era, where the femme fatale was all the rage in art. And whilst the Circe of John William Waterhouse's painting, sorry, I know I, I just keep saying his name, his full name, but I, I just really like it. John William Waterhouse, it just sounds nice, you know? Anyways, his paintings are somewhat femme fatale-ish, but what I really like is that's not all Circe is in his paintings. She's far more nuanced. She's a queen, she's a goddess, She's powerful, she's malevolent. She is not all evil or all seduction. There's more to her than that, and that's the best kind of interpretation of her. Thank you for indulging me. I could gush about these paintings all day, but really it would just descend into pterodactyl screeching because art, and it makes me feel things. Now, I do have a confession to make. This script took me a long time to write because not only did I do a heck ton of research going in, but also... I kind of thought I had to talk about Ulysses by James Joyce, which, for my fanfiction girlies, is basically like Odyssey AU fanfiction set in the 20th century. It's also like 700 pages, and in it, Circe is the owner of a brothel, which is partly inspired by the fact that the Christians of the Middle Ages made Circe purely a symbol of temptation and, um, unchastity, because of course they did. 
I tried, guys. I really tried, but I just can't bring myself to do it. For one thing, I want to keep this podcast series as PG as possible, and Ulysses is absolutely not PG in any sort of way. And besides, I realise that this is my podcast, and I can focus on any part I like. However, I felt that I should at least mention it. So, here I am. Ulysses by James Joyce. A Cersei-like character is in it. She's reduced to a brothel owner. Thanks! I hate it! And so did Virginia Woolf, I'll have you know. Let's move on, shall we? Thank God. S. What happens when you take the temptation away from Cersei, when she's still a powerful witch-slash-goddess in her own right, but that element of seductiveness is removed? You get guinea pigs. That's what. That's right, guinea pigs. And with that, it's time to talk about one of my favourite interpretations of her. In the second book of the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series, Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters, which is wildly underrated in my opinion, don't cover me, don't at me, it's my favourite of the series, let's just move on. The titular hero goes on an Odyssey-like adventure to rescue his friend from Polythemus. Now, naturally, any Odyssey reimagining worth its salt is going to have a part with Cersei in it. And boy, oh boy, does Rick Riordan deliver on that part. So Cersei's island has become a spa resort. When Percy and his gal pal Annabeth arrive, yeah I'm calling her that because it's funny and also gender is relevant here, the Circe they meet has renamed herself Cece. Surrounding her island of paradise are old boats, ships and planes from various eras, a telltale sign that something is amiss. Percy dismisses them as tourist replicas of course, but we come to know they're the real deal, remnants of all the men Circe has trapped. We then hear Circe singing, and it's just as beautiful as in all the ancient interpretations. When we meet her, she's weaving a stunning tapestry. Immediately, she talks to Annabeth about giving her a spa makeover, revealing her innermost self, and the red flags start blaring as she is left with Percy. The innermost self is a reference to how, in the original myths, transforming the men into pigs in her mind was revealing their true selves. She offers Percy not wine, but age-appropriate strawberry milkshake, and he's transformed into a guinea pig instead of pig, because guinea pigs are cuter and less smelly. It's up to our heroes to figure out how to stop her. It's a very clever, child-friendly interpretation of the tale, but what I really like about it is that Annabeth is the one to save the day here. Percy is transformed, and Annabeth steps into the Odysseus role, But unlike Odysseus, she doesn't use a show of violence to defeat Cersei, but rather, as a child of Athena, she outsmarts her. I also very much enjoy that. Like with a lot of Rick's villains, they aren't totally evil, and they often have, actually, pretty good reasons for doing what they do. Or if not good reasons, at least understandable ones. Cersei is sweet and kind to Annabeth at first. She is talented and beautiful, but again, she is also malevolent. But not without reason. The Sea of Monsters touches on aspects of sexism, which both the demigod daughter of Ares, Clarice, and Annabeth herself mention or have to deal with. Cersei highlights the sexism present at Camp Half-Blood and how many men take glory for themselves. It's just another great example of Rick Riordan's writing, how he can present such multi-layered interpretations of Cersei in such a short time, bringing up such complicated topics all under the guise of a funny adventure. In my opinion, it's some of his strongest writing. But now we've come to the final part of the podcast, which I'm sure is the part you've been waiting for the most, that being discussing Madeline Miller's 2018 novel, Circe. 
Before we get into Circe, I do want to mention that whilst Madeline Miller's book is rightfully declared as a feminist take on the Circe myth, it isn't the first such reimaginings and it won't be the last. For example, Margaret Atwood's Circe Mud poems spring to mind as a dive into Circe's thought processes. But these interpretations are much fewer than Circe reimaginings, where the focus is on her temptress slash witch side. So it stands to reason that a well-written, emotional take on Cersei's story would be wildly popular. Miller's story is heartfelt, depressing, hopeful, shocking, frustrating and deeply familiar. It's immensely hard to write a book about a woman suffering under patriarchal systems without it coming across as glib, heavy-handed or making it so awful that it simply becomes dystopian. I've read a few reimaginings of Greek mythologies where the female characters are so completely stripped of their agency that it becomes hard to connect to the story and the characters. Where it becomes a tale of, yeah, all men are all awful all the time and there's nothing any woman can ever do about it ever and we are all crushed all the time forever. It's so depressing, right? And, well, yeah, that's super depressing. Thanks. And I guess there are spaces for that kind of story. But can it really be called feminist if your downtrodden female character starts the book like that and ends up like that too? It's not really inspiring. Side note, I want to add that stories about real women and the injustices they sought obviously don't always have a happy or inspiring ending, but they have their own uses. For example, feeling that sense of rage and injustice being inspiring for the next generation of feminists to demand things that are better. However, that's not what we're talking about here, or not what I'm talking about anyway. I mean it in terms of fiction and how fiction and feminist stories can be inspiring. Besides, Cersei is absolutely a downtrodden character in Madeline Miller's book. We see her struggle and lose time and time again, but we also see her grow as a character. We see her change and grow into her power. We get to celebrate her finding her place in the world, take lovers of her own volition, and secretly cheer when she turns men into pigs because, certainly in Miller's book, we get a sense of schadenfreude from it, catharsis, I mentioned before that most women have at least one guy they'd like to send Cersei's way, didn't I? Most importantly, we get to see into her mind. At last, we hear Cersei's voice beyond that of a beautiful song which bewitches or scares men. We come to know her motivations, her thoughts on her relationships with not just the men, but the women in her life too. We finally know why she turns men into pigs and we completely understand her reasons. We see how other women handle the complex societal structures in different ways and how men suffer under it too. Indeed, Miller's take on Odysseus, whilst not being new, I mean, her interpretation literally uses Circe's words from the Odyssey as inspiration, that his mind cannot stop turning to war. It's brilliant, and I'll have to do a separate podcast about that entirely. Miller plucks all of these different stories of Circe throughout the centuries and weaves them into one complete telling of Circe's life. And the best thing is that, like Waterhouse's paintings, Miller isn't afraid to show the darker side to Circe. She truly is the nuanced character she has always had the potential to be. I genuinely adore the book, and the ending is so perfect to the Circe myth. Circe has been so many different things to so many different people, usually falling on the negative or scary side, that it makes sense that we end on a cliffhanger, forever guessing which path she takes. I won't discuss the endings of the book in detail here, lest I spoil it for you, but if you have read it, that final paragraph and the ending, 
You'll know exactly what I mean. I could honestly have gone on for days about the different Cersei interpretations over the years. Some are typically eye-rolling, like the DC villainess Cersei, who wants to kill Superman because he rejected her. Some are kind of weird, like the Assassin's Creed Odyssey interpretation, where she's some sort of like feral witch with a blood-stained mouth and a mini-boss fight at that. And then there was the one which dealt me about 50 points of psychic damage and had me screaming into my girly group chat, which is that there's apparently a 2017 movie where Cersei is actually a Trojan priestess whom Odysseus kidnaps to help fight against the... Oh god, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Odysseus kidnaps her for help fighting against the Kraken, which the Trojans released in revenge against the Greeks. So now I'm imparting that psychic damage onto you. You're welcome. And on that horrendous thought, I think we'll move on to question time. This is a new segment where I read your replies to the question based on last week's podcast and answer any questions you have for me. Last week's question, given to you, my lovely listeners, was based on the book Good Omens, the topic of last week's podcast. With silliness, we looked at how an apocalypse can be considered cosy, and so I asked you the question, how would you react to seeing fish raining from the sky? So I'm going to read some of your answers now. Rebecca said, depends. Sushi? I'd love it. Just fish straight from the sea? No. Cooked? Is it hot? Then no. Cold? Probably also no. And yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I love sushi. But what would really sell it for me is some smoked salmon onigiri. When I was in university, I studied in Hawaii for a semester and the corner shop near my apartment sold the best salmon onigiri. I would swim back to Waikiki for one of those bad boys if I wasn't so afraid of sharks. So Rebecca, yeah, you're onto something here. Am Davidson 513 and Libby Fawcett both said something similar with either being grossed out or not even bothering to ask if it was cured like the people in Good Omens did. Because yeah, as an apocalyptic event, it's super freaky. You definitely expect scary rather than yucky for most end-of-the-world scenarios, don't you? (laughs) I think emotionally I would be like Trick, who says, Call work and tell them I'm out sick. Raining fish definitely seems like an indoor day. And emotionally, I am so with you, Trick. I would love to do that. But as a city girl and a teacher, I think I'm most likely to be like BCQ, who says, Probably take an umbrella with me and leave early for uni since the roads must be filled with traffic. That is the most city person response I've heard and I feel it in my soul as a Londoner and as a teacher as well. I'd just be looking at the sky going, oh, it's going to be an absolute nightmare to get to work today. (laughs) So that was the first question time of Greeks and Geeks. If you like this segment, please let me know and I'll definitely keep going with it. Your feedback is so important to me and I personally love to hear your thoughts on the episodes and show a little appreciation back. The question of the week this time is, if Cersei turned you into an animal to reveal your innermost self, what animal would you get transformed into? I'll tell you mine next week too, but to answer the question, you can do so on Spotify or by contacting me on Twitter at GreeksGeeksPod. You can also ask me questions about this episode, which I'll happily answer next time. Thank you for listening. 
Next Tuesday, we'll be sticking with witches as we move into the 20th century, taking a deep dive into Kiki's delivery service and the satanic panic of the 1980s. I've been your host, Sabrina, and I'm geeking out. See you next time. Bye.